AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And right now we are joined by Patrick Kulikan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Make sure you head over to minnesotareformer.com for the latest in Minnesota news and politics and in-depth stories that you often won't see uh, in other places. So make sure you go to minnesotareformer.com. Today on the docket, we are going to be talking about Patrick's column on school segregation in Minnesota. We'll also be touching on North Dakota being mad about another law passed by the Minnesota State Legislature, and we have a new state flag. We're going to be chatting about that as well, so lots to get to today. Patrick, thanks so much for coming on the show. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So let's start off talking about your column, which has to do with segregation in Minnesota. title of your column is Minnesota Supreme Court Gets Us Closer to Ending the Travesty of Minnesota School Segregation. Now, this all stems from a Supreme Court case at the state Supreme Court, which was ruled on last week, which basically said that parents seeking desegregated public schools do not have to prove that the state of Minnesota caused the segregation, but they do have to prove that racial imbalances in schools lead to poor educational outcomes for students of color. Uh, We'll get to that latter part because Chief Justice Natalie Hudson took took an exception at that part, but we'll get to that a little bit later, but... First up, before we dive in a little more, tell us a little bit about this case, this Cruz-Guzman case that was at the Minnesota State Supreme Court and what it means, because this could have a big uh, impact in terms of trying to, well, desegregate many of our schools in Minnesota. Yeah, the, the, some parents uh, sued the state of Minnesota in 2015 are saying that the extreme uh, de facto segregation that we see in metro school districts uh, has uh, led to uh, academic disparities uh, for children of color. And the the suit has um, worked its way up and down the court system, and we finally get this uh, important ruling from the Supreme Court last week. I think it is viewed uh, by folks that I talked to as um, a victory for the plaintiffs um, because they don't have to prove that uh, the segregation, uh, that the state caused the segregation or that they intended uh, the segregation to happen. Uh, they only have to prove uh, that the, the segregation is having an impact on the education of, of children of color. And uh, folks seem to think that that's going to be uh, a relatively easy bar to clear because we've got decades of evidence on that front, um, both that Segregated schools um, lead to uh, academic disparities, uh, and also that desegregated schools improve the outcomes of uh, children of color. I, I think this is a really important case. Um, Minnesota has, generally speaking, I think we we have good public schools. If you are highly engaged parents um, and, and avail yourself of all the resources. Um, but I think that uh, some of that, uh, the idea that we have good schools is is a self-perception, and it ignores this uh, uh, significant portion of the student population that is growing, I should note, every year that students of color become a bigger portion of the, of the entire student uh, population, and uh, the academic achievement uh, scores um, you know, proficiency scores are, are lagging, and our state's uh, establishments are kind of 
um, business and political establishment uh, have, you could say, tried various approaches to that uh, issue, um, to that problem. Um, the, the, the achievement gap or the opportunity gap, whatever you want to call it, they have made no headway. Uh, and, and to my mind, the, the best, uh, only real proven solution to this, uh, problem of opportunity gaps is to desegregate schools. It was tried in this country, uh, vigorously for about 15 years in the 70s, uh, in, in, until about the late 80s. And, uh, where it was tried, it worked. Um, and then we just stopped doing it and we resegregated our schools and now we're living with the results. And I think when people even hear the term segregation, at least in modern times, they often get the picture of a very white, suburban, wealthy school versus an urban school in, a, in an area that typically has pe- more people of color. But as you write about in your column, that's not necessarily always the case. In fact, you have your own personal example where your own kids could potentially attend two vastly different schools in St. Paul in terms of, well, the makeup of the school and the performance. And I think that really encapsulates encapsulates the situation that this is not like a metro, or not really metro, but like an urban versus a suburban school issue. This is happening within districts already in Minneapolis and St. Paul and others where you're seeing segregation, well, within local districts. Yeah, this I, I want to start by saying there's going to have to be a metro there has to be a metro solution, and, and that could be what the courts eventually order. But I do find it astounding that within St. Paul itself, and I and I think it's true in Minneapolis, it's definitely true in Minneapolis as well. But it, within St. Paul district itself, you have uh, uh, the one school. Um, I, I didn't intend for this to be a personal column, it's not, um, but but it just so happens that this school, Maxfield, uh, is is the geographic quote unquote neighborhood school for for my family. Um, and I have no doubt that the the, the parents, the, or the teachers, and the the educators there, and the administrators are working very hard. Um, but they just have significant challenges. Ninety percent of the children come from uh, homes that would qualify for free and reduced price lunch. Uh, obviously, now we have universal free lunch. But uh, just as in terms of of measuring the socioeconomic status, ninety uh, percent free and reduced price lunch. Uh, you have something like 90% of the, of the children are, are uh, ch- children of color. Um, you have uh, one in five are English language learners. And then you go to an, another elementary school not that far away, four miles in the same district. Forest Man uh, is, is almost a mirror image with uh, 75%. Uh, and I should note that Maxfield, uh, the... the uh, uh, proficiency, um, reading and math proficiency are less than 20%. And, and at Horace Mann, it's, it's more like 75%. Uh, this is the same, again, the same district. Uh, Horace Mann is not a magnet school or anything like that. And, um, it, but it is the Maxfield Elementary is where my children would go, my oldest, uh, my one who was of school age. He doesn't go there because uh, we looked at the data and um, immediately started to try to get him into a different magnet school. Now, other parents, they don't have the same information I have. They, um, they don't have time, like I do, to be uh, as engaged. And I, I think anybody would, would say that it's just, it's just deeply unfair 
to a child to to be uh, sent to a um, a school that is uh, not uh, teaching proficiency in math and reading uh, simply because of their uh, their zip code and uh, or the neighborhood they they where they live. Um, and so this is a problem that this is exactly why the plane is sued, and and hopefully uh, within a year we'll have a trial, and uh, and then we'll have uh, conceivably a court ordered desegregation plan for the entire metro. I, I will say that that is going to be this is I, I don't want to I don't want people to think this is a panacea. It's actually going to be incredibly fraught uh, process politically. Um, and, and it's, it's going to raise a lot of um, very strong emotions. Um, and, and this is without even talking about the charter school um, issue that uh, I didn't really address in this column. But the, there are another the charter school parents are, are another uh, piece of this, and um, that, that's going to be a very uh, difficult issue for, for the court to decide as well. I want to talk about something that Chief Justice Natalie Hudson uh, seemed to take issue with in this ruling, and I do want to talk about what could happen in the future with this, but I, I do want to first talk about Chief Justice Natalie Hudson because she took issue with the idea that you need to prove that racial imbalances in schools lead to poor educational outcomes. And what did you find powerful about she, what she said? Because to me, I think you and I have talked about this, that seems kind of obvious that, well, if you're segregating your schools, that's generally going to lead to a worse performance. But the idea that, well, you have to prove it, that does seem like something she took issue with in that ruling. Yeah, so Natalie Hudson is the new Supreme Court, uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, of the State Supreme Court. She's the court's sole black jurist. And uh, I want to say that she largely agreed with the with the majority's decision, but she did take issue um, with a, with a couple issues, with a few uh, findings of the majority, and, and, I, and I think that they they're going to live on as as um, powerful uh, as a powerful her dissent will live on as a powerful legal document. I think first, as she says, uh, there's no real distinction between de jure and, and de facto segregation. De jure, we think we think of it as being intentional and, and bound in law. So, in other words, let's say uh, redlining, where um, we, we prevent pe- uh, black people from living in a neighborhood um, by uh, preventing banks from lending uh, to black home homeowners. So that that would be de jure segregation. Whereas the fact of segregation just kind of happened by chance and it's not in law. Um, what she does is she says there's no real distinction here because. The reason we have de facto segregation is because of government policies. Now, they, they might not be going on right now, but they uh, all of those policies from the past continue to live on. Um, and so that was one, I think, important argument she made. And then she also uh, she says um, segregation is bad, not just for black students, but for all students. Um, and the fact that we have uh, segregated schools is in itself uh, a an act of educational discrimination. Um, so I, I think she made a, a powerful uh, argument, and then of course she she just rounds up all of this evidence that uh, uh, segregated schools are are going to be uh, academically inferior, and there's no point in, in having the plaintiffs have to prove this because it's it's already been proven. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was very impressed with her dissent, um, and, and I'm happy that uh, that she's going to 
she she will preside over uh, any future um, appellate rulings in this case. And last question on this. So what does happen if, uh, well, Minnesota has to go through and try to, well, desegregate some of our schools? Is this something that would come from the state legislature, a directive from the court? Or what exactly might the court even rule that Minnesota has to do? Some of these appellate courts, or would this work this way back up to the Supreme Court? Uh, I'm curious kind of what happens next. Well, I, there's a lot of unknowns here. There, the parties to the lawsuit did have a uh, settlement um, that they made. It was the the state of Minnesota, the plaintiffs, and uh, the charter school parents. And it was something that I guess everybody could live with in terms of desegregating the schools, but also protecting uh, some of the charter schools that um, are based around uh, African culture and heritage and so forth, and so tend to have... Uh, Tend to be heavily segregated um, by choice, if you will. Um, so they they presented this uh, settlement to the legislature in 2021. It was a divided legislature. They were busy with uh, the uh, pandemic, and also I think legislators don't want any part of this. Um, it's it's too fraught a political issue, and so they just took a pass and didn't do anything on it. So yeah. I suspect um, we would have, uh, again, some kind of potential settlement talks, and then that could be uh, imposed judicially, um, depending on the, the outcome of a trial. Um, so, you know, I think everybody has, uh, you know, some people have, are, are knowledgeable about efforts to desegregate schools in places like Boston and Detroit, and it, it can be politically very, very ugly. And so I, I, I don't want to... Uh, I don't want people to think that what could happen here would be uh, would be um, entirely uh, a panacea or um, um, make us uh, united around shared civic ideals, because it could be very divisive. Yeah, as always, the devil's going to be in the details. If something were to come down to force Minnesota to take significant action, and I'd probably be with you that the legislature would rather avoid having to do something, but still a long ways to go in that in that case. By the way, you can read more about that column again. It's the Minnesota Supreme Court gets us closer to ending the travesty of Minnesota school segregation over at minnesotareformer.com. I want to briefly touch on a few more stories that are in the news, and uh, I want to talk about North Dakota being mad about another law that was passed by the Minnesota State Legislature because you might remember us talking about North Dakota being unhappy about Minnesota's new free college program. Well, there's another law that Minnesota lawmakers passed that's rattled some feathers in North Dakota, and this time it's our new carbon-free law, which requires Minnesota utility companies to transition to 100% carbon-free electricity sources by 2040. That includes sources brought across state lines, which is where North Dakota comes in because they have worries about their oil and gas companies uh, not being able to make as much money because won't somebody think about the oil and gas companies. Over half of the electricity generated in North Dakota goes to out-of-state customers, and most of that supply goes to Minnesota. So you can probably understand why North Dakota is a little concerned about this law that was passed in Minnesota. So I'm curious, what exactly does North Dakota want us to do with our carbon-free law? And I guess uh, more importantly, are any of the Minnesota politicians listening to what's happening in North Dakota? Uh, I 
I think that uh, for some Democrats in, in Minnesota, this is the fight that they probably want to have um, because it, it gets uh, allows them to frame this as an issue of Minnesota um, moving toward a cleaner energy future um, and in opposition to uh, the dirty petrol state that is uh, North Dakota. Um, legally, North Dakota did successfully uh, sue Minnesota after the 2007 law uh, that did not uh, was supposed to prohibit uh, Minnesota power generators from importing coal from other states. This is viewed as an unconstitutional um, violation of the Commerce Clause. So I don't. I'm not a lawyer, but I don't think that they the the, the case would be nearly as uh, clean cut um, on this time uh, from preventing Minnesota from enacting its uh, law to uh, decarbonize our our energy um, our utilities by 2040. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. We kind of uh, my colleagues in North Dakota thought maybe they would decide on a lawsuit yesterday, um, and uh, it turns out they did not. Apparently, they're still, still discussing it. You can read more about that over at minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com. And one more brief story to talk about, and, well, this is uh, something that I think a lot of folks are paying, paying attention to. We have a new state flag in Minnesota, which was uh, chosen today. Uh, best way to describe it, it's the flag with the white star on the left side, uh, with a dark blue background on the left, with a lighter blue background on the right side. It is the new flag that has been chosen for Minnesota. Uh, we've had a chance here on the Matt McNeil Show to talk a little bit about this process of uh, how the flag was chosen. Anita Gall's been on the show a number of times talking about that. And I'm curious kind of what your thoughts are on this, Patrick, and at least the process as well when it comes to choosing the state flag, because I always kind of get a kick whenever uh, something like this happens because so many people go through and say, well, I hate this flag. I don't like these designs and a lot of negativity, but overall I kind of like this flag. It's a good, simple design, and I think an improvement on our current one, which was uh, not only pretty offensive, but also a very, very busy state flag as well. Yeah, uh, I think it's been a fun process. Um even as, as polarizing as it's, as it's been, I think that the, the flag, uh, um, I think it really embodies uh, a great Minnesota attitude, which is, uh, eh, it's, it's good enough. <laughs> it could have been, and it could have been worse. <laughs> um, I, I think if, if, we, uh, if we look at the state flags from around the country, I think what we'll find is that this one is going to be known. Uh, if, you, if, you can, if you look at them all, um, it's got some nice, it's simple, um, and, um, and it's, it's elegant in its simplicity. And I think it's going to look good on, uh, t-shirts and hats. Um, and that's ultimately what you want and it's not offensive. Um, so overall, uh, you know, you, you, uh, you get a committee to design a horse and they, they wind up with a camel. I think that's the old saying. Um, but this, uh, I'm okay with it because they almost went down some really bad roads. It's not as good as having a, uh, my favorite was the picture of the, uh, of the, uh, um, dog, <laughs> um, the Labrador. I couldn't think of the, the breed. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that would have been something, but, uh, barring that I'm fine with this. 
Yeah, I think so as well. We were joking a little too. You could do like a Prince-themed flag. But yeah, the, the simple is probably the best way to go, and especially an improvement on the uh, on the old flag we had, which uh, didn't exactly uh, depict Native Americans in a very positive light. So this one, uh, yeah, I think is a big, big improvement. Uh, you can check it out. Pretty much just Google the MN Minnesota state flag. You'll be able to find it on there and the, and the design that they ended up choosing. We have been speaking with Patrick Hulican. He is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Again, make sure you go to minnesotareformer.com for all the great uh, news they cover here in Minnesota in our political scene and just in general news in particular. Again, minnesotareformer.com. Patrick, as always, thanks for coming on the show today. Always a pleasure, and happy holidays uh, to everybody. And uh, We'll talk to you in the new year. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950. Jingle all the way Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh Jingle bells, jingle bells